Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. The reading of God's Word this morning will begin at verse 17. Let us pray for the Lord's kind grace to us through the spirit of illumination that we would hear with understanding and by faith. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we do pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes to the wonderful things in your word, open our hearts to the ministry of your spirit. Oh, shepherd us, Lord. Lead us by your voice, the voice of the master, the voice of the good shepherd. Bring us, Lord, to that fertile, lush field where we will lie down and be at rest in you and not seek from the world our rest. Let us hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis arose claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, 
and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. One of the greatest books of church history, of course, not counting the Bible, but one of the greatest books has to be Augustine's, The City of God. It is a massive piece of work. In the copy I have, the unabridged copy, you don't get to the index at the back of the book until page 1092. Augustine spends a great deal of time, time well spent, describing human history as a long conflict between what he calls the earthly city and the city of God. As you might expect, these two cities have very different populations, very different lords, and very different destinies. As Augustine writes his way through philosophy and theology and much biblical interpretation, he keeps referring to these two cities, the earthly city and the city of God, because he does not want his readers to lose the bigger picture of his project. At one point, halfway through the book, where he is teaching about Cain and Abel from Genesis 4, Augustine says, here we have the very heart of the earthly city. He is referring to the heart of Cain, who murdered his brother, Abel. Cain, says Augustine, worshipped God not because he loved to give himself to God, He worshipped rather because he thought he could bribe God to move God to give Cain his true passion, domination in the earthly city. Augustine then says, Here is the difference between good men and bad men. The former make use of the world in order to enjoy God, that would be Abel, but the latter make use of God in order to enjoy the world, that would be Cain. In our text today, Acts chapter 5, we are meeting the offspring of Cain. We are meeting the children of Cain. We are meeting men who love the earthly city. We are meeting the spiritual ancestors of Cain in Acts 5, his spiritual descendants. You see, Cain was the first killer priest. That's what he was. Here in Acts 5, we are meeting more of these killer priests. Cain, who refused to give his life to God, ended up taking the life of his own brother, Abel. 
In Acts 5, the high priest of Israel repeats that very evil. He refuses to give his life to Christ. And because he refuses to give his life to eternity and cling to his life on the earth at all costs, that high priest wants to take the life of Peter and the disciples. You see, they are obstacles to his favorite lie, this high priest, that both God and men should serve him, adore him, and give him glory in the earthly city. Beloved, we are surrounded by such men in the world. And as we see in our passage today, even sometimes in the church, men who want to use God to enjoy the world. Verse 17 says the high priest was filled with jealousy toward the disciples. Verse 33 says they were enraged and wanted to kill the disciples. Then verse 40, after Gamaliel, the Pharisee briefly calms them down with his worldly wisdom. It says they beat the disciples and charged them not to speak of Jesus. Why is Gamaliel's wisdom worldly, by the way? Because he says, stay away from these men. In God's providence, this spares them death. But that doesn't make Gamaliel's wisdom godly. To stay away from the apostles is to stay in death, to stay out of the church, out of the kingdom, outside of Christ. But look at all the jealousy that fills them, just like Satan filled Ananias' heart at the top of this chapter, just like Satan filled Judas. Jealousy, anger, desire to murder. Then they are beaten, it says, in verse 40. And that would have been the common 39 lashes on the back. The law of Moses said a a beating, a flogging should be 40 lashes. The Jews dropped it by one to make sure they did not go over. They were so legalistic. (laughs) Paul said he received this very same beating of the 39 lashes on five different occasions, 2 Corinthians 11. But this is all the different ways in which these descendants of Cain are mediating a ministry of death to those who desire the city of God because they want the city of the earth. Now in Acts 5, we are seeing that persecution against the risen Christ and his body is growing. Just as our Lord said it would. After the lame man was healed in Acts 3, we had the first warnings and the first threatenings in Acts 4. In Acts 5, we now have bloodlust and severe beatings. In two chapters more, in Acts 7, we will have the martyrdom of Stephen. A deacon of the church is stoned to death there intensification of persecution against the church. And by this, beloved, you are to see what is happening inside all the children of Cain, even if they are cloaked in clerical vestments. You are to see by all of this 
anger and bloodlust, what lives in the heart of Cain's offspring? You cannot refuse God, we are learning here, and somehow keep your heart for yourself. You cannot refuse God and somehow keep your heart clean. Satan will always fill it. Cain became a bloodthirsty priest who hated Christ and his church because he could not, would not, forsake his love for the earthly city. Love for himself corrupted Cain's worship. He despised Christ, making himself unacceptable to God, and that enraged Cain. So in envy, he hated and he killed what was acceptable to God, his brother Abel. Our Lord Jesus says in John 8, 44, that the devil was the murderer from the beginning. Then it says in 1 John 3, 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? John asks, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And now in Acts 5, we meet more of these murderers, all cut from the same cloth as Cain, all offspring of the devil, all made in the anti-image, the image of the serpent. Their true father is the devil because it is their will to do what the devil desires, John 8, torment the church of Christ. You see, they cannot bear to hear the word of Christ, so they take up earthly powers to silence it. So here is lesson one this morning. Do not be a child of Cain. It's that simple. John said it this way, we should not be like Cain. If you want it to be more complicated, I apologize. It's that simple. But you cannot do it without falling on your face before God. Do not be a child of Cain. The children of Cain worship God, but their worship is fake. Cain brought an offering. The leaders in Acts 5 hold top offices in the church. But none of them worship God to give themselves to God through Jesus Christ. None of them draw near to God for forgiveness of sins, for healing of sin's corruption within them. That's not why they worship God. None of them draw near to God for refreshment of their soul by mercy. None of them draw near to God for an increase of love and faithfulness. That's not why they worship God. None of them draw near to God to be more like God. All the children of Cain draw near to God to bribe God. Oh, yeah, they are at worship. But they come seeking a bribe. I'll give you a little something if you give me domination over this earthly city. Oh, I don't want Chicago. Just give me my house. Make everybody in my house serve me. Just give me my city, my church. Give me a few people, and I'll show up at worship. It's the heart of the murderer, beloved. That heart of Cain will hate 
the people it seeks to dominate, always finding them an obstacle to the city it truly loves. And that's why we see in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's where we are in Acts 5. We see in Jerusalem the clerical leaders, the clergy, murderous city of earth lovers. They would kill Christ twice if they could. So they will kill his body, his apostles and his disciples. Now our passage this morning is not chiefly about the rage of the wicked, though, is it? Our passage this morning is really about something else. It is really about how easily Christ Jesus from heaven disarms earthly powers and authorities opposed to him. How easily he binds the canes of the earth and quickly moves past them and does his will. That's what our passage is really about. The wicked are in our passage simply as a foil for the might and mercy of the risen Christ, not an obstacle to him. He is but an obstacle to them. You see, the Lord Jesus in our passage, from his throne in heaven, sends one of his own angels The text tells us it's one of the Lord's own. The Lord sends one of his own angels to escort his disciples out of the prison that they have been locked up in. The angel sends them right back to the place and to the practice that got them arrested the day before. We'll come back to that. So at sunrise, there they are again, teaching all the people in the temple while the leaders of Jerusalem are being cut out of the Messiah's plans. He's going right around them. This passage, then, is chiefly about how the 12 apostles are the new and true authority of God's kingdom in Israel. Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Sanhedrin, not the high priest, The risen Christ gives temple authority over to Peter and the apostles. Fishermen are leading the kingdom because they who humbled themselves have been exalted by their king. The chief point of Acts 5 is exactly what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, right after Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That should be the heading on chapter 5 of Acts. Actually, let's put that above the whole book of Acts. In fact, let's put that wherever we write A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. This is the chief point 
of our text. The gospel of Christ cannot be silenced or stopped. The souls of all the elect who are even still in bondage to the devil, they will be liberated. Not one will fail the liberation of its Messiah. Christ himself is going to see to it, is the point of our passage. The kingdom of grace will not fail to advance in this present evil age until the arrival of the kingdom of glory. Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. He is now seated at the right hand of the Most High. The nations have been made his heritage. The ends of the earth have been made his possession. His mighty scepter rules from Zion above. Nothing can withstand him. Nothing can resist him. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can frustrate him. No one can sabotage him. No one can oppose him or prevent him from gathering out of the world all souls for whom he has shed his atoning blood. The message of his salvation will reach the ear and heart of everyone he has appointed to eternal life. His kingdom will not fail anywhere or at any point. If somebody is not saved, it is not a failure of Christ's kingdom. All whom he is going to save will be saved. And this is all gloriously revealed in our text in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now let's consider for a moment the prison break itself. It's okay to call it a prison break. And then let's consider the direct order given by the angel to the disciples. The prison escape itself should draw our minds back to an earlier escape. Where's your mind going? A different escape also took place with the help of an angel. Where's your mind going? The Lord Jesus himself, not too long before the events of Acts 5, was imprisoned in a tomb where his dead body laid. A massive stone was rolled in front of that tomb to shut it, and then that stone was sealed by the soldiers, and then that stone was guarded by the soldiers. But behind that stone, by the power of the living God, the dead body of Jesus did not experience corruption inside that tomb. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. But our Lord Jesus wanted that tomb opened by the hand of an angel. Not so he could get out, but so his disciples could look in. Matthew 28, 2. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Why has the Lord Jesus created this parallel between his tomb opening and his prison cell opening, this prison cell opening in Acts 5? Why the parallel? 
Why the presence of the angel of the Lord at both openings? Because our Lord is demonstrating to his church that we are the blessed recipients of his authority over every kind of death. And beloved, when your heart is inflamed with the glory of Jesus Christ's authority over every kind of death, your life straightens and strengthens in the things of God. You lose so much sadness even though you lament, but you find a joy to live for God because you are persuaded that Jesus Christ has authority over every kind of death, and he keeps that authority not away from you. And if you wake up tomorrow morning, you are struck by the sovereignty of it, that you are alive again because your Lord has given you another day to breathe. We'll come to this. Whether we are threatened with death, whether we are put on death row, for our faith, or whether we are even put to death, the Christian has nothing at all to fear about death. You should not fear death. If you fear death, come to me. Talk to me. I cannot rest as a pastor until you no longer fear death. We should not fear death. We should be so strong in the authority of our Savior over death that we will put ourselves in places that everyone who fears death would not put themselves. Like back in the temple, preaching and teaching in the office of the high priest who's probably going to come and arrest us again. Our great high priest has already died the death of judgment that our sins deserve, hasn't he? Death to us now is but a peaceful resting in the care of angels. There's no place you can be on this earth approaching death where an angel cannot minister to you. Isn't that one lesson of our text? Are angels of the Lord locked out of our prison cells, out of our surgical wards, out of our near-death experiences? The Lord is with his people. He shares the authority he holds over death. Death is no longer a judgment against our sins to us, but a pleasant rest in the arms of angels. Christ's blood has been shed. Do you know what that means, beloved? The precious blood of the precious lamb has been spilled on the mercy seat. Death to us is no longer what wicked men want it to be to us. It is not dread or terror to us. Our priest, Jesus Christ, is the great high priest of life. He is not a priest after the order of Cain. He does not demand that we die so that he may live. That's Cain's way. 
No, he dies so we might live and live in the fullness of his joy and resurrection life. And this brings us to the directive of the angel. The angel said to the disciples in verse 20, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Do you see how wonderful this is, this directive? The angel did not say, quick, get yourself out of town. Do you have a bag? Save yourselves. The angel did not say, you guys better conduct your ministry in a more private place. I know a place. Nope. The angel directs the disciples to go right back to where they were when they were arrested. Stand in the temple, even though the authorities don't want you there. Speak to the people, even though you've been told not to speak. Here's the point. The Lord sprung them out of prison, but not to keep them out of trouble from earthly powers. Not to make their lives pleasant, did he spring them. Not to make their lives easy, did he spring them. He sprung them from prison to give them both greater boldness and greater joy in proclaiming Christ to all men. Because they see in the angels' ministry to them that they share Christ's power over death, that he is mediating his authority over death to them as their true high priest, because they see this, they should not shrink before earthly powers. In fact, by breaking them out of prison, do you see it? The Lord has put them back on a path moving toward a severe beating. This is to teach us everything we need to know about the love and sovereignty of Christ at the right hand of God. Why or what should they think now while they are being being beaten? Remember, they're being beaten because the angel got them out of prison and told them to go stand in the temple and told them to speak of this life, salvation in Christ. What should they think while they are being beaten, while their bodies are then slowly recovering through the pain? What should they think? Well, we know that whatever they were thinking, it brought them to joy and rejoicing. They should think something like this. The Lord kept us out of prison, but he did not keep us out of a beating. He could have, but he did not. That means he wanted us under the rod of the beating, under the lash of the beating. Us being beaten wasn't a failure of the Lord's faithfulness. Our suffering wasn't a failure of the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord glorified himself through our escape and through our beating. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Look what fruit that beating draws out of them. The text says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ 
is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ from heaven was mediating to his body as high priest his joy as prince of eternal life. And he mediates this joy to his people by not making them fooled that earthly life is heavenly, but making them suffer with him to share in his sufferings on the earth so that they would look away from the earth and hunger and hope for the full consummation of his resurrection life. And they would have joy in him and truly receive the mediation of his life. Beloved, we must not fear anything that will cost us to be faithful to Christ. We should only fear that which draws us away from faithfulness to Christ. If the Lord designs for us some kind of beating, it doesn't mean that those who have beaten us are righteous for doing it. The Lord's design doesn't acquit the guilty for violence. But if the Lord designs conflict for us because of our faith, trouble for us because of our faith, beatings for us, imprisonments, the Lord designs any of these gradations of death, we should rejoice because he is testifying to our spirit by his own spirit. Romans 8.17 says that we are children of God because we are sharing in his sufferings, that our mode of existence through this world as pilgrims is lining up with his when he was here as the pioneer of our pilgrim faith. You know, we, some of us in this congregation, are likely to experience a gradation of death in the near future. You might be canceled for your faith, canceled in your corporate job, canceled in your public government job. Corporations more than ever in this country seem to be taking up the aggressive, progressive politics of the father of lies. Don't worry about it. It is the Lord's calling. If he puts you under that beating, where you lose your job or you hit a ceiling much sooner than you thought you would, don't worry about it. Christ has designed it. Christ could have kept the gate of the prison open and you could have become CEO, but he didn't. Now you're a janitor. Now you're fired because you wouldn't sign. Beloved, don't worry about it. Every gradation of death is just a reminder to you that your high priest has authority over all death in this world, over all the ministry of Cain in this world. He is glorifying himself and testifying to you that you are worthy. You are united to him And you as the body united to the head will share in the head's trouble as he was here below, but you shall also share in the head's glory. Now, 
I hope you see it as I get close to finishing here. The disciples, under the sovereign management of Jesus Christ, are experiencing through the leading of the Holy Spirit an imitation of Christ, aren't they? They are being hated in the world. They are being persecuted. They are being arrested. They are being imprisoned. They are being brought to death. People want to kill them. And then they are vindicated and they are released from their type of death by the power of God. All of this is a testimony to their soul that they are experiencing the imitation of Christ, that they are truly his body, that by faith they have been received and reconciled to him, and he now is living through them. But I want you to not overlook one important thing here. No matter how much we suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, we never take up the ministry of death. What did the angel direct them to? He said, go and speak of this life. The ministry of death, the ministry of hatred, the ministry of rejection, the ministry of anger, the ministry of condemnation, that all belongs to the children of Cain. The ministry of life belongs to the church of Christ. The ministry of life is our ministry. It doesn't mean that we will put away the accusation of the law. No. Did you hear what Peter says to this council? He says, you crucified Christ. He accuses them of their lawlessness, but he immediately moves on to say, And I'll read it to you again. God exalted him, verse 31, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So instead of coming out of that prison cell and frothing at the mouth with anger and condemnation against the authorities, saying, you guys are toast, I can't wait till Jesus comes back and presses his scepter on your forehead and stomps your brains. I can't wait. That's a ministry of death. That's the ministry of Cain's children. They leave the prison knowing they're moving towards a beating. And they do exactly what the angel told them to do. Even when they are brought before the leaders of Jerusalem a second time, they announce the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, God has exhausted his wrath against man's sin upon the body of his son. God has done this in order to deliver sinners from the condemnation they were already under, not bring them under a new condemnation. Ours is to go and announce this, that those under condemnation for their lawlessness can be brought under the blood of Christ and enter into life.
I close with these words to you, beloved. If you fear death, I would be so glad to talk to you. There is nothing to fear. We only should fear death if Jesus Christ has not been raised. We should only fear death if sin has not been expiated. If sin has not, if God's wrath has not been propitiated, then we should fear death. Oh, yes, because death is a curse to us then, a judgment against us. But if we know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we believe that God has raised up his son for our justification, we must not fear death. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask and pray that we would look with new eyes upon every day that we recover from an illness, every day we recover from surgery, every day we we realize we have avoided a, a bad accident on the highway. Every day that our guardian angels again keep us in this world, in this age, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would see it with new eyes. That we have not been brought into our rest. Not to flee from you not to serve ourselves, but to serve the risen one who is life itself, to be among the ministry of his church that proclaims this life, to live boldly and joyfully, knowing that this earth is not heaven to us, but it is the present evil age and that we can tell the truth in the midst of it. And souls will be harvested in the kingdom. Our gracious God, we do pray that you would help us with our eyes. Help us believe and see that our high priest is risen and ascended at your right hand. And he has all authority over heaven and earth. He holds the keys to death and Hades. And there is nothing to fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.